0: saying I work for Peter Jacobson I'm Peter's caddy until he watched Tiger play and after two or three weeks when Tiger went like fifth third win that was when he said Peter uh, Tigers offered me the job I think I should take the job but I'm only going with your with your approval and my wife Jan grabbed the phone and she said Mike you're fired you're fired (laughs) You no longer work for Peter, which obviously was a way of saying, you got to go to work for Tiger.
1: Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck back for another podcast for The Knockdown. Our guest today is Peter Jacobson, one of the most varied men in golf. He owns an event management company that puts on tournaments. He's a TV broadcaster. He's the driving force behind the greatest golf band of all time, Jake Trout and the Flounders. Still an active competitor on the Champions Tour. Winner of seven PGA Tour events. But really, one of golf's great storytellers. I wanted to have Peter on at this moment in time because he served as an ambassador for the just-concluded Arnold Palmer Invitational. And I thought he'd have some insight about that tournament and plenty of other things. So, Peter, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me on this world-famous
0: podcast.
1: Hosted by you. You flatter me, but I appreciate (laughs) it. So the Arnold Palmer Invitational just happened. Um, I know you've always been close to Arnie. Give me me your best Arnold Palmer story. Well, my best
0: Arnold Palmer story has to be the time I played with Arnold in the tournament, his last tournament. He missed the cut, but I made the cut. We actually had uh, Jay Haas and I played with Arnold at Bay Hill at the Arnold Palmer Invitational and went through all the emotions of Arnold playing his last time. I made the cut on Saturday. I shot like a terrible score, like a 78 or an 80 or some crazy number. So I was off on my own on Sunday as a a single. Yeah. And nobody likes to play by themselves. I don't
1: care where you are. It's the walk of shame. (laughs)
0: It's the walk of shame, especially at a tour event. So I was at a party at Arnold's house on Saturday night and he was giving me a hard time about playing lousy. He said, hey, you play good with me, and you go out there and you play lousy without me. So I said to him, look, i got to play alone at 7.45 in the morning. I don't want to play alone. I've never done that, never been a single. Do you have a committee member or somebody that's been on your staff for a lot of years that you'd like to play with me? Uh, I, I said, I don't care if they're a 20 or a 30 or a 10. doesn't matter. I just want to have somebody to play with. He said, let me think about it. So I went over and had a, had a drink, came back, and he said, how about my grandson, Sam? <laughs> I said, Sam Saunders? Because I knew Amy and Roy and the whole family, and I knew Sam was a 13-year-old budding golfer, pretty good player. Yeah. So I said, absolutely. So the next morning, 7.30, 7.45, we get out there. There's 300 people on the tee, and I know they're not there for me. <laughs> And I look up there on the tee, and there's Arnold and there's Sam, and they're ready to go. So I walk up, all prepared. Mike Cowan's caddying for me, Fluff's caddying for me, and we uh, we tee off. And they said, who do you want to go first? I said, let, let, let Sam go first. <laughs> so he got a huge ovation. He mashed one over the corner that I didn't think I could hit past him. I hit a pretty good one, and I literally got it about two feet past him. That was it. <laughs> So that was my indication that Sam was going to be a good player. But the really cool part of the story was when we walked off the first hole, we looked behind us, and there was Arnold in a cart following right down the middle of the fairway <laughs> behind us. He, he did that for 18 holes. He watched us play 18 holes, Sam, his grandson, and I, and that is such a great memory in my mind from Bay Hill. And... To think back at that time when Sam was just a kid, just starting the game, it was it's a great memory.
1: That's really cool. What do you think he shot that day? Sam? Yeah. I know what he shot. He shot
0: 75. <laughs> what did you shoot? 69. <laughs> and I'm glad I beat the kid because he was 13 or 14. Uh, but I do remember because Arnold was keeping our card. And every time Sam would beat
1: me out a hole, Arnold would
0: go, ah, ha, ha.
1: <laughs> I'd say, of course, it's in the genes. You've probably never grinded so hard. No,
0: I've never have grinded so hard because Sam was a heck of a player when he was that age. And he's obviously on the tour now, and he's a, he's a great player, but he's a, he's a better person. Sam Saunders is a wonderful young man.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm a fan for sure. Do you guys still laugh about that day? Oh, we do. I see him when I'm on my, doing my
0: duties for Golf Channel and NBC. I see Sam on the golf course, and we talk about it frequently. Uh, most recently, we talk about his, his grandfather all the time because every time I see him, it reminds me of Arnold, and we, and we talk a lot
1: about it you got to the tour in 1977 and you know Arnold was in his late 40s but he could still play i mean like in 1975 he won twice on the european tour top 10 at the us open so he i mean he wasn't winning tournaments but he was still a factor and what what was it like just to see arnie palmer out on the range or whatever
0: well it was he was larger than life for him to for you to walk up on the range as, a, as a, in 1977 when i was a 22 or 23 year old rookie to walk on the range and put your golf balls down next to a Palmer, Trevino, Nicholas player was overwhelming. And I was I was always drawn to Arnold because he he was always he'd always smile at the young kids. When you when you get into the competition on the PGA Tour, you can't expect it to be like a cocktail party. You can't go up to a Jack or an Arnold or a Jordan Spieth or a Tiger or a Phil and expect a warm welcome simply because They're in their office. It's the first round, third round, last round, whatever it may be. But Arnold was always different. Arnold was always smiling at people. In fact, the first time I ever qualified for a tour event was at Pebble Beach. The AT&T, Pebble Beach National Pro-Am, back then was the Crosby. I qualified at Old Del Monte, shot a 70, (laughs) qualified on Monday. I ran out to Monterey Peninsula to get a few holes in before it got dark. I was so excited, my first tour event. I played 10, 11, 12, and it was getting dark, and I jumped over to 16, hit a couple of balls because I was going to play in and it was going to get dark and go to dinner. All of a sudden, around the corner from 15, I heard this rumble, and I looked behind me, and there was a huge gallery following Arnold Palmer and Mark McCormick, his manager. And I thought, oh, I just cut in front of the king. I just <laughs> cut in front of Arnold Palmer. And I didn't know what to do, and I stood there. My caddy, it wasn't fluff at the time, But my caddy and I were there with my name on my bag, and he walked up, hitching his pants, cocking his head, and he could have said or done anything at that point, because I clearly cut in front of him. He walked up, he stuck out his hand, and he said, hi, I'm Arnold Palmer. Can we join you? (laughs) Now, there's a lot of things anybody could have said, but that was a very inviting and welcoming way to say, I know this is an uncomfortable situation for you, but... Let's play in. And that overwhelmed me. We played 16. On 17, he turned to me and he handed me a sleeve of the new Arnold Palmer golf balls, which I wish I still had. He said, I'm getting into the vent- uh, a new venture of making golf balls. He gave me a sleeve and he said, tell me what you think. And I'm thinking, oh, what was cool about that was that meant that I was going to have a second conversation with him at some point when he said, tell me what you think. <laughs> We played three holes. He and Mark shook my hand. Arnold said, really enjoyed meeting you. Thanks for letting us play with you. Good luck to you. And he walked off. And it was one of those moments that I feel like it was yesterday because it was so impactful. Because growing up, I was a huge Arnold fan. I was a huge Jack fan. I was a huge tour fan, uh, golf fan. And I, I feel like it was yesterday. And I remember when he came in and when he was gone. And it was a pretty special time. But Arnold was always those, one of those kind of guys that, If he ran into a youngster, a young player on tour, he didn't know, he'd walk over and introduce himself. And I always tried to follow suit whenever I was was playing on tour and I saw a young guy sitting by himself that I didn't know who it was and I was going to have breakfast or lunch, I'd walk over there and sit with him and introduce myself. Again, I'm just another guy on the tour, but the more faces you get to know as a rookie, the easier the transition becomes.
1: What did you think of the golf balls?
0: I can't honestly remember. I, I, <laughs> I, I probably hit them in the ocean. Who knows what I did on accident? Probably hit snap hooks off 18.
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, I remember you once telling me that you thought the, the clam bake was the most important event on tour because of the relationships you could build. And um, so, I'm, I'm, and that, that sense of giving back to the game and and pushing things forward in a certain way. So I have to ask you, what did you think of of the top players who skipped Bay Hill this year? Well,
0: let me go back to what you said. I still believe the AT&T is the most important tournament we have on the PGA Tour because if you look at our schedule of 40-some-odd tournaments, where else can we play with the CEOs and the executive VPs that make the decision to write the check to sponsor each one of these events? Those guys all play at AT AT&T. And that's why we should have the strongest field of the year should be at the AT&T as a thank you to those CEOs that sponsor our tour and promote our game. So I really get frustrated when I see great players skip Pebble Beach. So having said that, it was difficult at the Arnold Palmer Invitational last week Seeing the great players and some of the best names in the game skip the tournament, I felt that what a great time to show respect and pay tribute to Arnold by playing in his tournament. So, but that's me. I'm very close to Arnold in this situation because we're, even though we're 20 years, I'm 20 years younger than he is. I still felt his impact in the game. I do give a lot of the younger players a a bit of a break because a lot of them have never either met Arnold, have never played with him, have never experienced the joy or or the, 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 the importance of being with him in an exhibition or a tournament round or at a dinner or in a fundraiser. I get that. But the most important thing that we did last week was we focused on who was there, not who wasn't there. Because... I think that would do a, a disservice to those that were there to focus on those that weren't there. Uh, and, and it was a great event. No question about the, the celebration for the week, the honoring of Arnold Palmer was uh, was, was at the right uh, pitch level, and I think it all came off beautifully.
1: You've always had kind of a big-picture view of the game, and I know you're involved in many initiatives promoting tournaments, um, any number of different things. I have to ask you, have you made more money on the golf course or from your your golden tee revenue?
0: (laughs) That's a good question. I definitely made more money playing golf, (laughs) but the golden tee venture was was fantastic. How did that even happen? I had this group out of uh, Chicago come to me in Portland, Oregon. I was living in Portland in the early 90s a group called Incredible Technologies that still owns and manages the game and I still do things with them, they came to me and said they had this idea for a stand-up parlor golf game. Would I be interested? And of course I was. I, I think being a tour player, it puts you in a position where you have lots of opportunities to do many things. And I've never turned those opportunities down. My, my father always said, look, you're going to have opportunities come your way. Don't close the door. Take a look at them. Analyze them. Critically analyze them. And decide if they're good for you or not. And I thought this was going to be something that would be really fun, first of all. I had no idea it was going to be as popular as it, right. as it has become.
1: It seems kind of like a silly idea. Oh, yeah. Stand-up golf game? Sure, whatever.
0: And they said, would you do voiceovers? So the original voiceovers was uh, Pat Summerall and I. Hi, everybody. I'm Pat Sommer. Welcome to Golden Tee. Joining me, Peter Jacobson. And then I would do these stupid comments if somebody hit a bad shot. I can't tell you the number of times people, when I was playing the tour, would yell at me. Yeah, Peter, you idiot. Thanks for the comments on Golden Tee. But now it's Jim Nance and I. In fact, I'm going in a couple of weeks to go do another four-hour voiceover session to where I read the lines that go on the new game. What, but it's, it, it's really been fun, and, and uh, it's something that I get to talk to the gallery about, other than maybe me shanking the ball in the water.
1: What's your favorite golden tee put down?
0: What <laughs> I hear the most is um, when a guy hits it in the lake, and I would say, how about a little scotch with that water? I hear that from people all the time, especially when I hit it. If yeah. I do hit a shot in the water, someone will yell, yell that from the gallery which makes me laugh. I may be upset because I just went for a par five and hit it in the water. Someone will go, how about a little scotch? And I'll, I'll give them the thumbs up and like, like you got me.
1: I would probably pick a different finger.
0: (laughs) No, I go for the thumb. They go for the other finger, the other digit.
1: Was that, was that your line or was that, was that scripted? That
0: was my line. What we get to do is they give me, um, oh, it's, it's like eight or 10 pages of Lines and I read them one by one, and then they say wild lines, and I can say whatever I want.
1: And that's always the ones. The smart
0: ass ones are the ones they use.
1: <laughs> I mean, are you like on an airplane somewhere, and you're like, oh, that's a good golden tea line. I better jot that down. I mean, do you think? No,
0: so? no, no. I don't. But I have people that come up to me with good golden tea lines. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's awesome. Now, of course, you're the reigning U.S. Open champion, Tin Cup. So um, how did that come to be? And, and give me a few tales from the set.
0: When I've ever, whenever I'm introduced on the first tee, they, they, they never say U.S. Open champion. That, that was the easiest win ever I had in my life. Uh, no, I, a bunch of the golf pros were approached to be in, in Tin Cup. And so many of us jumped at the chance. In fact, if you look through the movie, you'll see so many tour pros. Stadler, obviously, has a prominent role in Cook and, and Couples and Pavin and Jerry Pate and Litsky and... Jansen. And Jansen, Chili yeah. Peppers going yeah. up his chili ass. Chili Peppers, yeah, <laughs> the whole thing. And what we did is we all gathered in, uh, in Houston to shoot a bunch of the scenes. And one of the guys was, was a friend of mine, and he said, I want you to win the Open. But you have to be here for this certain time frame to be able to film it because that's when it comes in the script. And I, I I, was. I was free. So they said, okay, we're going to have you win the Open. So there was no grand plan. It just turned out to be a stroke of luck. And uh, so there was... Um, I didn't have to pay them for that.
1: That's so disappointing. <laughs> I assumed that you had some nope. old photos of Ron Shelton no, or something.
0: No, it was, it was just... Uh, a friend was involved in the sh- in the show, and he said, Hey, could you do this? I said, Sure, I'll do that. You got to be here? Yeah, I'll be here. So it could have been one of any guys. So there was... No, I wish it was a better story than that, but it isn't.
1: That's awesome. All right, so let's get back to the real golf. I want to ask you about the 1985 Ryder Cup. Th- that's an epic moment in, in the timeline of modern golf. You know, Europe had not won the Ryder Cup since 1957 but there was clearly this whole wave of guys. You had Faldo and Seve and Longer, and they're all in their late 20s and starting to peak. So when you fly over to the Belfry, do you know that it's just going to be a war?
0: I had no idea. <laughs> I was a rookie on that team, as were a couple other guys. Curtis, who we played. Curtis and I played an alternate shot match, and we won oh, our match. we'll get to
1: that, yeah. Oh,
0: we get over there, and Trevino's our captain and Trevino had just gotten married to Claudia so it was a celebration time for them and we were all really excited about the Ryder Cup. I'd known about it obviously for years but when we got over there I was fairly naive when I got to the first tee and was introduced in a match and all the Americans were being introduced there, were, there wasn't the cheers and the clapping that you hear at, a, at an open championship or on the first tee of a tour event, there were whistles, and there was contempt for the Americans, and that shocked me. I remember thinking, where are all the, yeah, I like this guy from America. It was like, <laughs> like <laughs> no big deal, We'd, we're not pulling for you. So I know it shocked me, uh, but we ended up getting beat, but the one thing that was an unstoppable force with Sevy.
1: Okay, well let's so first of all a few things. Yeah. That that Ryder Cup was not even televised live in the United States. So you had not grown up watching the Ryder Cup. So you really didn't understand Did not understand what you were playing for. I knew for. what it was. Yeah. It's a competition
0: between Europe and the United States that the United States just w- w- rolled over. I mean yeah. they were killing them all the time. So I went over there thinking this is gonna be a celebratory thing, represent the country and win. It's like a little boondoggle. Right. Now I had known Seve and Sandy Lyle and Nick and Woozy and all and, and those Mark James and I knew those players, but I didn't know them well and I didn't know how good they were, but also we didn't realize that the European sentiment going over. There it what? was do or die. Yeah. And that that was a real wake-up call for me.
1: So the US, you guys actually won the morning Friday session, three to one. It's like same old. Just gonna just gonna walk over these guys again. You go out Friday afternoon. So you're you're playing with Andy North against Sevi and Manuel Pinheiro. Correct. And what was you know, the Sevi mystique was just beginning, but It what, was real. Well tell me about what it felt like to play against him. Sevi
0: would look at you across the tee. And there was a look in his eyes, like, "Let me tell you, I am not going to lose to you. I am not going to lose to the Americans. I don't care who you are. You could be John Wayne, you could be <laughs> Superman, you could. Be, it doesn't, Clint Eastwood. It does not matter. He he was an unstoppable force. And Andy and I went out there, and we didn't play that well. We got beat. I think three and two, or four and three, or I I don't know what how we got beat, but." We didn't play well, but Manuel Pinheiro, who was Sevi's countryman, was under Sevi's spell. Anybody that played with Sevi literally fell under, Seve, under his spell, and their game raised to a different level. And I remember Pinheiro played great, Sevi played great, we got beat. And there was just something happening with Sevi. The sevi led Europeans we really on. we
1: they were on a roll. Yeah, okay. So, the the details are great here. So, it's tied six six going into the Saturday afternoon alternate shot, and so you get sent out with Curtis against Woozy and Paul Way. Now, tell me about Curtis because he was just beginning his ascent.
0: Yeah, well, Curtis is one of my close friends. We got to the tee, and Curtis and I would probably be on opposite ends of the spectrum. I'm pretty friendly, pretty outgoing. Curtis is. More intense like Seve. We get to the first tee, and I, we're in our red, white, and blue, and I walk to the tee, and there's our opponents, uh, uh, Sandy. As he said, Sandy and Paul Way. I walk over there to say hi. Woozy, yeah. Uh, Woozy and yeah, Paul Way, yeah. thank you. And Curtis says to me, uh, hey, hey. And he wags his finger like, come back. And he says to me, if you want to talk to somebody, you talk to me, or you talk to Fluff, or you talk to my caddy, you don't talk to them. And I'm thinking, oh, wow. This is serious stuff. This, yeah. is, this is really going to be intense. So I said, okay. Well, we went out, alternate shot, and we, we smoked him. Yeah. We, we, four and two. Four and two or something. Yeah. We didn't make a bogey. And we got done. And Curtis grabs me and he goes... That's it. He goes. That's how you gotta be. You gotta be tougher and more intense. And I went, <laughs> okay. But, but I think we were. Were we the so only point that we won? That was then? the only
1: point. So you're down nine seven going into singles. And let me let me call up this the singles because. It's, um, it's worth going over some of these names.
0: Well, I do remember I was playing Sandy Lyle, yeah. who was the number one player in the world at the time. Hit that one iron. Who like... hit a one iron past my driver. <laughs> Sandy was an incredible player.
1: The best, the best player, clearly, in the world. I mean, Seve has said that if we all played our best, that whole generation, Sandy would win. Like... Sandy
0: would win. Sandy Lyle, and it, it's sad for me because Sandy is one of the great people in the game. The fact that he hasn't become a Ryder Cup captain really bothers me because he's a sweet guy. But he was one of the most dominant players. If you put him in any era, he
1: clearly dominates. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, you're sent out fifth. Let's go through this. because So Lanny goes out first. He loses 3-1 to Pinera. I mean, Lanny Watkins, the biggest badass of all time. But, again, I, I will say this till the day I die. Manuel
0: Pinero, Seve's countryman. Was was caught up in the the Seve phenomenon and raised his game.
1: Okay, fine. So Stadler he beats he beats Woosnum two and one. So you guys are still in this. You're only down two points. Match three. Ray Floyd Ray Mundo loses to Paul Way. That ex- <laughs> another
0: one of those things. Come on. In the Ryder Cup, when things start going one way or another, it's like it's like a tree. Someone felling a tree in the
1: forest. You can't stop it. And you could just feel the momentum starting to shift. So, so what is your pucker factor? You're out there in the fifth match. You can see the guys in front of you are struggling. I mean, how does that feel?
0: Well, you know that it's going to fall to you. And I remember thinking to myself, all right, I got the number one player in the world, clearly the best player in this, in this group. If these guys can beat Sevi, sorry, if they can beat Raymond and Lanny, I can beat Sandy. Well, it didn't happen.
1: Right, so so Tom Kite has Seve. So now, so you're in match five. I mean, the Ryder Cup is teetering on the brink here. So as you're getting down, you you wind up losing three and two. So as you're playing like the fifteenth, sixteenth holes, how how empty do you feel knowing that you're going to lose and you're probably going to lose the Ryder Cup? I think
0: I was, I think I birdied nine to go one down, and then I believe Sandy made a long putt on eleven. And then he chipped in on 12. So I went three down. And I remember it just tore the heart out of me. But I fought. But when you're three down with six to play, turning that around is is a tall task against one of the best players in the world. But you're right. It It was a terrible... It was just a terrible feeling when you get beat. It's just a terrible feeling.
1: Yeah, so the match behind you is Sam Torrance. He sinks the winning putt and it's over. So... It's a long plane ride back from England, and you have some pretty scrappy characters on your team. Yes. What, what, what was that plane ride home like? Well,
0: it was pretty quiet because when you look at Lanny, and you look at Tom Kite, and you look at Raymond, and and and, and Stadler, and Curtis, uh, O'Meara was on that team. We we were we were all pretty devastated that we were the first team to lose in a long time, but as it turned out, that was really the 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 changing of the guard or the 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 wave, uh, I don't think it had anything to do with us. I think it had to do well. It did. We didn't play well, but it was really the the start of that incredible group of European players: Wosdom and Way, uh, Woosdom and Sandy and Seve, and and, and then Faldo, Faldo yeah. and Langer. It started. And when and when you and this would be a great book for you to write when that whole sea change happened for this an incredible well actually probably twenty years of great golf and great people in Europe.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a monumental moment in the game. So thanks for helping to launch modern golf, Peter.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. At my expense.
1: Let's talk about your career a little bit. I mean, seven wins is nothing to sneeze at. Um, when you look back on on your PGA Tour, uh, your long career, is are you satisfied? Are you regretful? How how do you feel about it?
0: I'm not regretful at all. The one thing that when I came out of Portland, Oregon, as a uh, as an amateur player, I had a decent amateur career. I didn't play that great. I got my card. Wh- whenever you join the tour, you never know how you're going to do. You just don't know unless you're Tiger or Nicholas. Or Ben Crenshaw, or, or or Jordan Spieth, or Patrick Cantlay, <laughs> you don't really know how you're gonna do. So every day is a new adventure, every week's a new adventure and a new experience. So when I look back and I, I see that I won seven tournaments on the tour and I won two senior majors, which is which is a pretty cool thing too. When I was when I was, fifty, fifty one and fifty two. You always focus on the ones that got away, the ones where you hit the bad shot or you didn't make the putt to mm-hmm. win, and I had my chances in majors too, but then I look back and think of all the great players that that, that won fewer tournaments than I did, or the kids that I thought were going to be superstars that never kept their card past three or four or five years. So all in all, I, I think I got exactly what I deserved, exactly what I should have had, and and I think along the way, too, the most important thing is I kept pers- my perspective of who I was to my family, who I was to my fans, who I was to the game. And that's really launched me into this next career of doing television. I love golf. I, I love it. Whether if you were out playing golf with my brother David in an amateur match, I'd be, I'd be following it because <laughs> I'd be hoping he'd kick your ass, of course. But <laughs>
1: I'd like to hear you announce that, actually.
0: <laughs> but the thing that I love... I love being able to to watch the young stars coming up, the Spies, Justin Thomas, Ricky Fowler, Dustin Johnson, watching these guys and how they develop and how what we did has helped them or helped to educate them. And I go back to the Arnold Palmer Invitational and what Arnold did for so many players and Jack and Gary and Lee Trevino and Tom Watson and on and on because the tour is really about passing the baton. And I'm just proud to know that I was, I was one of the baton guys that held it for a while and passed it on. Um, th- that's a real comforting feeling. There's, there's literally hundreds of thousands of players like me that, that came and went in the game of golf, but I think that's, that's the strength of the game, the number of players that were contributing to not only just the PGA Tour but the game of golf.
1: That's really cool. Before I let you go, I have to ask you. You mentioned Fluff earlier. Describe Fluff when you guys first when you first met him and first linked up.
0: I don't know how I ended up taking this guy on, but I was on the practice green at Silverado at the old Kaiser. Nice. In uh, northern Cal, and up comes this heavy-set guy with a
1: huge
0: brown beard. And if you're a Happy Gilmore fan, sure. Fluff looked exactly like Happy Gilmore's caddy in the movie. <laughs> the one where he beats up Bob Barker? Yeah. That was Fluff. Only this guy's tall. Fluff was shorter. And he walked up to me with that thick Maine accent, and he said, Peter, my name's Mike Cowan. I'm a tour caddy. You look like you're a good player. Let's work together. And I don't know what compelled me, but something clicked, and I said, let's do it. And for 20 years, we worked together. And still to this day, when, when Fluff left to go to work for Tiger, and now he's worked 14, 15 years for Jim Furyk, still to this day I consider Mike Cowan to be my best friend in the game. We talk every week. We had dinner a couple of weeks ago down in Mexico at the WGC. We uh, we just we just developed a a bond that went way beyond golf. We played golf. We worked together. We won tournaments. We had our heartbreaks, but uh, and now we share family stories. So he's still my 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 best friend in the game.
1: Were you bummed when he left you for Tiger? Actually, it was it was no because
0: Tiger was playing in the U.S. Amateur out at way, uh, Pumpkin Ridge, and. Tiger said to me, I'm looking for a caddy for three or four weeks after the U.S. Amateur. I'm going to play on tour a little bit. And through Butch Harmon, who's Tiger's coach at the time, a good friend of mine, a good friend of Fluff's, we had, and I said, why don't you take my caddy Fluff? Why don't you use Mike Cowan? Because I'm taking the fall off for my kids' t-ball and softball and soccer. So he went to work for, for Tiger and it was pretty funny because after, he kept saying, I work for Peter Jacobson. I'm Peter's caddy until he watched Tiger play. <laughs> and after two or three weeks when Tiger went like fifth, third, win, that was when he said, Peter, uh, Tiger's offered me the job. I think I should take the job, but I'm only going with your, with your approval. And my wife, Jan, grabbed the phone and she said, Mike, you're fired.
1: <laughs> You're fired.
0: You no longer work for Peter, which obviously was a way of saying, you got to go to work for Tiger. And I was so happy when he, when he went to work for Tiger. Because how many guys can say they worked for Tiger Woods? There's only, Tigers only had three or four caddies. Yeah. And Mike was a part of Tiger winning the Masters in record fashion. It's huge. It's huge. And we, we still talk about it to this day. We talk about how much fun it was. It was a lot of work. Tiger is... Tiger, as you well know, Tiger is not the uh, the the warmth of a, of a Lee Trevino or a Peter Jacobsen. Well, Peter Jacobsen or, or any anybody. So it was a lot of work. And uh, Fluff said that uh, he had a great time, but but when it was over, when when Tiger let him go, he said a big weight went off his shoulders because there's a lot of responsibility when you're caddy for the number one player in the world. But um, uh, Fluff is a is a, is a fabulous individual, as I said. Anybody that he, he meets, uh, they get to know Mike, and they know what a great person he is.
1: Okay, last question. What are, what are your deepest, most honest feelings about Tiger Woods? I'm a huge
0: fan. I, I'm a huge fan. Honestly, I love to watch him play golf. There are only a few people, if you think about it, and all the, all the, all the listeners right now, when you think about it, who makes you turn around and watch TV? when you're watching golf on TV, Arnold, probably, probably Jack, probably Spieth, probably Dustin Johnson, number one player in the world, McElroy. But for me on top of it all, when I watch Tiger hit a golf shot, it's, it's incredible because he hits golf shots. Unlike anybody we've ever seen. I also feel awful for him because I've had back problems and I've had back surgery and I know how difficult it is. So I, I do feel for Tiger. I've tried to reach out to him through Steinberg and talk about what he needs to do with this back rehabilitation and clearly haven't gotten any calls back because I know, that's, that's I know just the fe- Tiger. I know <laughs> the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Tiger's just not that, that kind of guy that he doesn't want a lot of people around him. He has a very tight inner circle whereas i think when you're recovering from injury or you're trying to expand your world whether it's a charitable world or whether it's a it's a world of knowledge about the your game or business or or your personal life i think you need to expand your inner circle because everybody has experiences you don't have and and that's the one thing i feel bad for tiger is There's a lot of opportunities for Tiger to reach out to a lot of people in this game that could help him, especially now at 41 years old, injured, looking at maybe not playing, not winning at the level that he did, maybe going into business. He's obviously hugely successful with his foundation, but I'm more of an inclusive guy. I like to have as many people around me as possible to be able to to learn from the experiences. But uh, as I said, I'm a huge Tiger fan. I want him to get back on my television or my monitor when I'm calling the tournament and see him hitting great shots and winning again because at the very least, I'm a huge golf fan.
1: All right, that's great. Well, I feel like we we need a whole nother podcast. There's so many things we didn't get to, but this, this was great fun. Thank you for your time, Peter. You got
0: it, Al. Well, let's do it
1: again. It'll happen. Yeah. There you have it. Peter Jacobson going to be the first recurring regular on the Knockdown podcast series. I like it. This is Alan Shipnuck signing off. Thanks again for listening. And we're going to have more podcasts coming your way very, very soon. I hope you'll tune in for those as well.